Hello, everyone, and welcome to Griplock Foundation Disc Golf's weekly podcast. I'm Hunter, joined, as always, by Trevor, and today we're going to kick the show off talking about Brody Smith getting his first professional win. Yeah. Um, so he's cashed a few times leading up to this event, but, you know, recently he stepped away from the Pro Tour, decided to go back home to Texas, work on his game some, and he played one flex start, he said, um, and then this was his first real tournament since stepping away from the pro tour right. um well, so he won by two over bo tillman coda hatfield in third we have an interview with him coming up in just a second but just your initial thoughts on seeing him win this early into his professional disc golf career certainly impressive i mean like you can say what you want like yeah i was a b tier but b tiers are not a joke especially in texas and i mean he beat good players you know we don't talk about ratings but you know he rated well <laughs> um but you know played good golf so like i i'm impressed that he was able to like turn it around that fast and yeah. i think that like i'm very curious anytime i see something like that you know i'm curious to see what the next event looks like because you know that's that could be a huge confidence booster like okay i can play good golf and beat good players you know yeah. so that that'll be interesting to see i actually want to after the interview here um, I want to talk a little bit about ratings because this tournament's making oh me question a few things, but we won't get into that quite yet. This tournament was actually, I believe it was in Oklahoma. Oh, that's right. That's right. Duran, Oklahoma. Um, but I believe it was yeah. in Oklahoma. But yeah, I mean, Bo Tillman and Coda Hatfield are no joke names. Um, it was definitely a great win. So um, there's no need to really stall on this. Let's go ahead and throw it over to the interview I shot with Brody uh, earlier today and hear his thoughts and perspective on his first win as a professional disc golfer. All right, so let's welcome in uh, Brody Smith. Um, so Brody, you're coming off a, I'm gonna say I'm gonna call it a big win. It's your first win as a professional disc golfer. Um, so kind of let's go ahead and just walk us through that final round. Playing, were, were you playing with a lead most of the round, or what did it look like? Yeah, I went in to the final round with the lead tied with Bo Tillman, and then um, I'm not sure why, but if you the scores were like. Every so every few people it dropped by two. So there was me and Bo at nine under, then there were three guys at seven under, then there were like three guys at five under, a handful of guys at three, a handful of guys at one. Um, so everyone was loving the odd numbers. But yeah, I played with going into final round, I played with Bo, Tanner, and Coda Hatfield. And, um, and then there was one other guy at seven under on the chase card. So that was pretty much, I knew going into it, one of, one of us five were going to win the tournament. Um, and as long as the guy on the chase card didn't just like have an insane round, I kind of had a, I, I knew I kind of had a good idea of what it was going to take from the people on my card. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so what, you know, recently you, you quit the pro tour to come back and then, you know, immediately you're welcomed with this win. Um, pretty much. was this their first tournament actually since the pro tour? Yeah, I did like a, a flex start, mm. which <laughs> those, have, you, have you, have you done a flex start before? I have not. I've played C tiers, but I've never played a flex start. Yeah. Flex starts are kind of weird. Uh, especially on a course that you don't really, you've never really played before. So like I went there and did like a practice round and then played the flex start right afterwards. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's weird. Cause you're basically playing against everyone's home. Like no one travels to play a flex start. Yeah. So you're basically just playing against everyone's home. Like that's their home course. So yeah. 
it was weird, but yeah, I don't really count that. So gotcha. yeah, this was basically the first tournament after, uh, you know, removing myself from MVP and GMC. So what have you focused on then, uh, since you've gotten home from Ledgestone, what has been like your number one focus that you think might've attributed to this, this win? The fir- well, the first thing I, I took your advice and I threw all my discs to like actually know what the heck was in my bag and just be, <laughs> just be more familiar with how they all fly. Yeah. And, and then I literally just went to the field and I would have, you know, 30 of my roaches and I would throw those and then I would have, um, a bunch of buzzes, a bunch of Zeus's. I didn't really do like too many different molds. I kind of just kept with a couple molds and I would set up like for the roaches, I would do different things of where I would have, you know, 150 to 175 and then I would have 175 to 200, 200, like every 25 feet. And I would work on throwing like, you know, the first three shots in the first t- t- landing zone. And then the second that in the next to really work on, um, controlling the distance of my upshots. Mm-hmm. And then, um, other than obviously just getting a lot of reps in, there was small tweaks and stuff to my form that I was trying to work on. I, I now no longer kind of keep my head at the target as much. I'll let my head go back with my arm. And that has not only generated a lot more power, um, where before, you know, the easiest way of looking at it is like my buzz. I was only really able to throw my buzz maybe 330 if I really ripped it. And um, at this tournament, I was leaning on that shot a lot and throwing it all the way up to like 380 feet. So a couple things like that, um, being a little bit more explosive with my footwork, and really, you know, you were there firsthand at Ledgestone and Idlewild. You saw like there wasn't very much confidence on the tee shots. I was very like, I have no idea where this disc is going or, you know, I know this shot requires, you know, is good for a forehand. So that's why I'm going to throw the forehand, but my forehand might not be where it needs to be. Um, this tournament off the tee I, that was my, my strong point. I actually didn't putt that well. Um, in round one, I think I was less than 80% inside the circle. Um, so I, I mean, granted it was Oklahoma, so it was really, really windy. (laughs) So putting, putting is a little bit difficult. And this, this course did have some good greens where, uh, it made it very difficult if you missed certain areas. So you could be still in circle one and really not have a, a putt at birdie. Um, but yeah, my putting wasn't that great. I think I really won this tournament because I was super consistent off the tee, which is the complete contrast to how I've been on the pro tour. Yeah. So, so speaking back to the pro tour, um, what did you find anything that like you were able to pull from the pro tour that gave you that confidence at all? Or was it just in going into this B tier tournament or was it just the, you know, practice since you've been home? Was there any like learning experience from practice rounds or ways to approach the tournament that you learned from the pro tour you could pull into this tournament? Yeah, I would say, you know, because my game wasn't nearly as good as it was, as good as it is now on the pro tour, I was having to play a lot of holes for par, Mm -hmm. um, where a lot of the upper echelon players are playing pretty much almost all those holes for birdie. So coming to this tournament, when I, I got to play it twice, Monday, 
um, the course actually wasn't set up for the tournament. So uh, we like we didn't even play hole four because hole three and hole four in the woods and hole three we played and then we just walked out of the woods. We didn't even know hole four existed back there. <laughs> so we, mi- we missed the entire hole. Um, and then there was a handful of holes that we either played the wrong tee pad or the pins weren't because they have short pins and long pins. Mm-hmm. The pins weren't in the proper location. Um, but Friday I got to play on Friday and everything was set up. And while I was playing, I was, you know, really deciding, okay, is this a hole that I want to play for birdie or is this a hole I want to play for par? Um, and there were two, almost three holes that were unbirdieable, like put Paul in that hole and give him 10 tries and he's not birdieing it once unless he throws in from like a hundred feet, you know, the, just the way that they're designed, a disc cannot manipulate itself to mm. get actually inside a circle too. So I knew those three holes, I'm just going to play smart, you know, chip a 250 foot shot, throw another 250 foot shot, tap in par versus trying to eat off a lot on the tee shots. So I felt like I played those really smart. And, um, there was a couple other holes that, I played where, hey, if I don't land in the perfect spot off the tee, I know where the next shot needs to go to be able to make a par. And I think I took a lot of that from the Pro Tour because I was pretty much doing that almost on every hole on the Pro Tour of just how do I put, how do I get a par on this hole? Yeah. Um, Did you, so obviously, you know, from just what you were just talking about, you clearly, as you played the preparation rounds, you were taking notes and learning where you wanted to miss and stuff like that. Um, so from, from your preparation standpoint and mindset standpoint, did you treat this tournament any different than you were treating pro tours? Cause I know a lot of players, myself included, if I'm going to a big tournament, like a pro tour, my mindset's different than when I'm playing a B tier, but I'm, I'm wondering if, cause you were just shaking your head. So you didn't treat this any different, did you? Yeah, no, because for me, you know, obviously I wanted to win, but I wanted to shoot the best I could. I was, you know, day one, I wasn't thinking about, I need to put myself in a position to win. I was thinking about how can I shoot the lowest round possible? I really didn't think about how I can win the tournament until hole 14 on the, on the round two, the final Interesting. round. That was when um, that was when I was like, I was going to look at my score. Cause I didn't actually look at my score compared to the field at all in round one. And I didn't look at my score compared to the field at all in round two until hole 14, because my game plan couldn't really change. There wasn't really any holes that it would be safer to play lay up or holes that I could get more aggressive and try to go for from hole one to hole 14, but hole 14 was a par five. And that was the first point that I was like, okay, depending on where I stand in the field, I might have to try to go for this mm. where in the first round, I just kind of threw a shot out. Cause it's like, it was actually, it's a sick par five. It's like a U shaped. So you have to throw like a 400 foot tunnel shot, um, straight up a hill. Then you have to throw like then you're wide open in this field and you have to throw like a 330 foot shot to like the mouth of another tunnel shot. And then it goes back. So it's like a U shape. It goes back down Mm. through a tunnel, like 250, 270 to the basket. So that's how I played. It was just like a dink, 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 and then made birdie, but you could get more aggressive off the tee 
and kind of get further down the U, if you will, to where you actually could potentially like carve one down the tunnel and have an eagle putt. Gotcha. But obviously throwing down a tunnel from, you know, 350, 400 feet away, if you go left or right, like the woods out here, you would not like them because there are so many spider webs, so many thorn bushes. It's a brand new course. You know, they haven't had that many people play it. And they did a really phenomenal job of like mowing the fairways and getting everything. The tee pads were great. Everything was awesome. Um, but it's one of those courses where like if you throw it in the woods, you, unless it's like a really a disc that you really like, you might see it 20 feet in the woods and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to <laughs> I'll just leave <laughs> so, that one later. Yeah. So I knew that. So staying out of the woods was crucial. But uh, no, the preparation was the same and the mentality was the same. Um, it was just the confidence level. You know, I knew that I could actually play good golf and it just felt on all the pro tour events that I was always just sh like struggling. I mm. always was just battling um, because I never could consistently get off the tee. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering because the reason I asked that is. First off, I knew your preparation wasn't going to change because I knew, you know, to you, you don't really feel the pressure of a pro tour versus a B tier versus whatever that a player, mm -hmm. honestly, like me might feel the difference. But I was wondering because I wonder how much that attributed to your win, the the preparation being the same, treating it like the same as you treat a, you know, the top players are treating big tournaments, you're treating the B tier. I wonder how much that separated you from the field because unless you're a local, I know for me, if it's a B tier, I'm getting one practice round in and, you know, I might take notes, but you know, I might only get one or two throws per hole. Whereas, you know, you're probably averaging, what, four or five. By the time you played the tournament, you'd probably thrown four or five tee shots on every single hole, I would imagine. Yeah, I played it twice. There was, I mean, like hole four, I actually didn't get a chance to practice that. Yeah. Um, I only played it. And, and it is a hard walk. So it wasn't like... Uh, it wasn't like you really wanted to sit there and throw a bunch of shots because mm. it, it was also like 105 degrees when we played it. It was so hot down there. So um, I didn't actually probably get as many throws. But um, the other thing that I did differently is if you go and look at, you know, even my practice rounds from Idlewild or other footage that we have on on the channel, I was throwing so many different discs off the tee and this tournament, I was throwing Zeus, my nuke, and Buzz. Mm. That was pretty much that was pretty much it. I didn't really change it up. Was that, that just much. the way the course was designed, or were you manipulating those all kinds of different ways? Yeah, I was manipulating them different ways. I have three Zeuses now that all fly differently too, which is nice. Um, so I can depending on you know the shot, but also like I was doing things where there's a hole that's like. 400 and 405 feet uphill so it plays pretty long but there's a there's a gap that you have to hit that's pretty narrow that is 100 feet off the tee and then it goes wide open space and then it goes again by the by the green another tight gap and so i played that hole smart because if Back in the day, I I say back in the day, like what, two weeks ago, <laughs> I probably would be like, all right, 400 feet, I have to throw an Undertaker. Mm -hmm. And the problem there throwing an Undertaker is if I do miss left or right a little bit, I'm not going to have a birdie chance. And it might be even difficult for me to make par. So there I'm like, I'm just going to throw my buzz 370 feet, 380 feet. I can't get to the trouble. 
And if I throw it really well, I'll have a 25, 30, 35 foot putt just short of the circle. So there was a lot of things of like that of where I was figuring out landing zones and being okay with understanding not every shot I need to try to throw underneath the basket, you know? Yeah. Play, you know, if it's, if right is safer, play for the right. And if, you know, it, it somehow sneaks back in left at the end and I have a 25 footer, great. But if it stays out to the right, I'm safe and I have a 40 footer, that's also fine. So there was a lot of things like that where before it's like, oh, 400 feet, Undertaker. Versus now I'm thinking about it more of like, what what's going to make me get a birdie chance, but also not have a chance of making a, a bigger number. Interesting, interesting. So um, as we kind of wrap up this interview, the, one of the final things I wanted to ask, because um, you had spoken to, you you know, you'd played with the lead most of the tournament, and that's just a completely different feel when you're when you're there, you know, playing with the lead instead of trying to chase someone, you're trying to conserve something. So what are some lessons that, that you're going to be able to take away from this event as you head into the rest of, rest of your season, both mentally and with your game? Uh, what, what exactly does tournament teach you? Yeah, for me, I think it's just the confidence and it's it's the uh, what I'm doing practice-wise and, and preparing myself for these tournaments is working. Um, obviously, I was able to kind of put it all together and, and have a pretty good tournament. There's some things that I still need to work on for sure. I didn't make a single circle two putt. Um, and I had a lot of chances at that. So there's certain things that I could have done better for sure, but the confidence of, of knowing that, you know, whether I would have won or not, just the confidence of being able to see the improvement from the practice I'm doing is super helpful. And I know like going into the next tournament, I think my next tournament is the, not this weekend, but the following weekend going into that, I know, um, that I might not throw off the tee as well as I did this tournament, but cause you're not always going to play good golf. You know, you look at the best players in the world, they fluctuate from how good they're playing, but just knowing that, you know, as long as I'm, I'm going up, as long as I'm going up, there's going to be some like kind of drops and stuff, but I need to be able to start going back up really quick after that. And I can turn it around. That's the other thing is like this, both, both rounds, the first four holes, you really wanted to be like two under after the first four holes. I think almost everyone in the top five were two under both rounds, and I was even par. I, I didn't birdie any of these kind of easy holes um, at the beginning, and not letting that get away. I feel like, I mean, you saw Idlewild, Ledgestone. I kind of let myself uh, get out of it a little bit. I never stopped fighting, but... I kind of had this mentality of like, oh my God, it's going to be this round today. And understanding that I'm going to have some bad throws, but knowing that I can, I mean, I went on a six birdie streak on the first round mm -hmm. and the second round, you know, I finished birdie birdie to win the tournament. So there's definitely things of where I know I can kind of turn around and, and make it happen. And, uh, Oh, this is one thing I do want to say. Last thing I want to say is just statistics wise, I mm -hmm. took stats um, of myself because no one was really out there doing stats. Yeah. And I, I love stats because I feel it's a really good way of seeing how you're playing and, and where you need to improve. So I'm at looking at Ledgestone. Oh, this is the entire Ledgestone. Okay, sweet. This actually worked. So the entire Ledgestone, my circle here, I'll, I'll let you guess. What do you think my circle two in regulation was? So like percentage wise. Those that's the looks you had from circle two for birdie, correct? Yeah. 
Um, twenty percent, fifteen percent. Okay, it was forty, so oh. it's actually better than that. But Sorry. circle one, <laughs> circle one was basically like that. Circle one was seventeen percent. Mm. So seventeen percent of the time, I actually had a decent look at birdie, uh, which is not good if you're wondering at home. Um, the final round here, my circle one was 67% and my mm. circle two was 83. Wow. So that's, I think that's what, that's what it needs to be. Cause that tells me circle two tells me you threw a good shot, but not a great shot. Circle one tells me you threw a good shot, a, a great shot. Yeah. So 80, 80, some, I mean, obviously you'd like to get that even in the nineties, but it just shows that I'm throwing my misses. Like we talked about my misses aren't nearly as bad. Because if you look at my misses from Ledgestone, they were probably the worst out of the entire field. Like when I actually threw a bad shot, it was just as bad as the guy that got last place. But then I also had some good shots that were just as good as the person that won. But the problem is like those bad, bad shots are a lot of trouble. So I'm, I'm trying to make my misses much, much smaller and uh, throwing a lot more of those good shots. Um, and uh yeah just continue to improve well awesome yeah so uh thanks so much for joining us glad we could talk to you after your first win uh, i'm sure first of many you got yeah. plenty of tournaments still coming up i know you know i saw people saying oh my gosh brody has quit disc golf after you left the pro tour uh, <laughs> obviously that's not the case you just made the the decision that was clearly smart for you to to come home you know get your game where it needs to be so that next year you can get the results you want on the pro tour so uh, yeah, hopefully we'll uh, check in with you again here here shortly after a few more tournaments and hopefully a few more wins. Um, anything else you want to say everyone, as you, you wrap up? Yeah, e everyone get those sticker packs Friday. They're going to go fast. Friday, it was Friday at 5, p uh, 5 Central? Eastern. 5 p.m. Eastern. 5 Eastern. Oh, yeah. Don't, don't do 5 don't Central. We'll probably be gone by then. <laughs> 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 All right. Thanks, guys. I'll talk to you guys later. So the main thing I got from that interview... Um, you know, he definitely went home and practiced his drives and stuff like that. But the thing that I found interesting was he didn't seem very happy with his putting throughout it. And yet he was still able to pull out this win, which, you know, as he mentioned, kind of somewhere in the middle of his interview, I think it was, um, that's like the exact opposite of how his game was playing. Right. Uh, right. Being able to be good off the tee and then not rely on his putting is the opposite of what we saw at, um, both not as much Idlewild, but definitely at Ledgestone. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I kind of brought up beforehand, and I want to get into a little bit more now, and you didn't know I was going to bring it up, but we're bringing it up. Oh boy. Um, the ratings, right? So Brody here averaged, uh, upper 10 twenties. I actually don't have it pulled up right now, but what I wanted to talk about with it was this weekend made me reconsider Oh boy, my stance on ratings. Cause like, so I've I've been very adamant about like, get rid of the ratings at the top. There's no point, okay. right? But just think of it this way: without ratings, looking at Brody's win, how would we know whether it was a good quality win or not? By without the, by the quality of players he beat. That's what how you've would been you know the quality the of players time. he beat without ratings? But their track record. What they've won before. So we'd have to go look at Cody Hatfield, Bo Tillman. We've never, we've never argued that ratings doesn't simplify the process of being able to look and see, um, get immediate feedback. Mm -hmm. We just have judged the accuracy of those ratings. I agree with the accuracy. Because I will 100% agree with you've said that yourself issue. that you want players to be judged based upon their track record. Yes. So there's your answer. Well, that's true. 
And I agree with the accuracy part of the rating, you know, because we... The, if ratings were accurate, it, they'd be great. But... They'd be fine. I think, okay, so the confusing part for me, right, is... let's So let's just say the ratings are accurate. Let's say they're perfectly accurate. Which they're not. But let's say they were. Yeah. Do the pros still have them? Well, I don't have a problem with them existing, even at the pro level. It's just, I don't... I don't think why are it's the fact that they're paid attention to so much, even yes. by the pro players. So but, like, yeah. that's like there. There's probably there's so many advanced metrics and statistics in professional sports that are thrown around for every sport, and those athletes don't care about them. Mm-hmm. They just care about winning or losing and whatnot. So like, I don't mind. You know, as a sport, it's good to have a lot of different stats. You know, it helps us consume. You know what we're watching and like understand how good players are and what's going on. But when they're misleading, like I believe ratings are a lot of the time, that hurts that process. Yeah. So, yeah, because I think this is what it came down to was that we saw Paul tweet out this past week about ratings and how, you know what, I'm going to do something a little unprofessional here, pull out my phone and find this exact tweet because I want to quote it because I don't want to misquote Paul on what he said about ratings. All right. But this kind of started, the this tweet that I'm pulling up right now kind of started a whole... I don't want to say debate, but it got me rethinking about it again. Uh, Here it is. Paul said on four days ago, so end of August, I find it quite odd that Nate Sexton or Big Germ didn't once mention ratings in the CBS broadcast. Oh, wait, that's right, because they're pointless. And then he put an asterisk and said four professionals. This got clear close to 600 likes and 38 responses. Um, A few days after that, I put out uh, just a blanket tweet um, basically asking... Ratings for professionals, good or bad, and why. Um, and what I kind of got interested in was the ratings themselves, right? Like, if you look at when we compare them directly to a handicap, I think is where the whole idea of ratings disappearing when you become a pro goes, mm-hmm. right? Because I even was talking to a PGA caddy um, over Instagram, you know, hopefully we'll you know, talk to him some more and possibly get him on the podcast, something like that. But I was talking to him and just asking him, I asked him like the PGA, you know, professional you caddy for, if you asked him his rating, would he know it? And he said, no, he'd laugh at me. So that's where the idea, at least in my head was coming from was, you know, if the rating system was meant to be the handicap system, then why is the pros like so heavily like focused on? And why is it there? Basically like what good does it provide? But then, um, with one of the responses was, uh, where exactly was it? I want to give this guy credit because I thought it was a good, a good point, but basically it might be too hard for me to find. Um, basically he was saying like ratings themselves don't hold back anything like ratings in themselves. It's the number next to the person's name. They aren't bad. They don't do anything wrong. They don't stop anyone from doing anything. They don't stop tour cars. They don't stop payout adjustments they don't stop anything that like we've talked about multiple times progressing the sport they don't stop any of that but because of how highly influenced or high how, how highly emphasized they are in the mm-hmm. sport that is actually what hurts it right so well, then that got me thinking well this that plus this tournament got me thinking they i mean ratings yeah if you look about like what they actually influence it seems to be like probably where their effect is most seen as far as like actually making an impact is like players getting sponsored, you know? Mm, mm-hmm. So like that and like not even obviously the top players, you know, they're sponsored regardless. So their, their ratings not being considered who cares. Yeah. It's more like those bubble players, 
You know, I feel like that's probably where the biggest impact is. But I yeah, I don't know if ratings are really hurting the game that much except for the fact that it makes players that are newer and are trying to like work their way up, they concentrate more on ratings than wins. Yeah. They're yeah. just thinking about how can I get my rating up, not how can I win. I can see that, yeah. And that I think that translates into the top of the game where we have guys who don't care about winning either. Yeah, they just start caring about their rating. I can I can understand that. I just, I don't know. When I was looking at Brody's round, you know, in looking at the tournament, my immediate thing was I saw he beat Coda Hatfield and Boatsman. I knew both those players already. So I knew it was a good quality win. Yeah. But then it immediately made me go, well, how good was it? And I hit show round ratings and I looked at it and I was like, oh, wow, he like he played really good. And I'm like, wait a second. But you don't know that. Yeah. It's, it's like reflex to see a rating and go, that's good or that's bad. But we know for a fact that ratings can be messed up. They can be skewed, but... So the rating system is messed up in the fact that like it's going to be skewed by a certain number of points. But if a round's over a thousand rated or over 1030 rated or over 1020, it's a good round. I mean, yeah, you can assume it was good. Yeah. And so like I think it's more noticeable when there's like there's sometimes there's 970 and 980 rated rounds that should have been 1020 and 1030 rated. rounds. That that will happen occasionally. So maybe the, the rating system could be flawed. Sure. But I was just saying, like, I feel like we've, at least me, several times have called, like, called for ratings and the professional level to just go away. And I think this tournament at least made me question that stance of, like, is that actually, not is it good for the sport or is it bad for the sport, but it makes me feel more like it doesn't hurt or help them staying there. Like, it doesn't really, it doesn't, it helps me as a fan. Yeah, I don't, like, it doesn't really do anything. I don't have a problem with them existing. And I think they're fun for AM players to an extent. Um, well, and players need them. Yeah. Because and players, you have to know which division and you have to be able to separate divisions within yeah. AMs. Because there's, you know, a 970 rated player, no matter how no matter how much ratings vary or mess up based on regions and who's in the field or not, a 970 rated player should not be playing rec. So no, that's, yeah. that's where a, a rating is needed. And I think that's the whole point of it is Paul and others that have talked about this is saying like, that's the point of ratings. So I think from that perspective, it's like, why do pros have ratings? Because once you get to a pro, you're a pro. You're in the open field. Like maybe, anyone can play open. Maybe like a solution. Well, I don't know if that's a solution because it's different. Here's what I think. Round by round, it's different. Yeah. What if what if your player rating caps out, caps out at 1,000? So I've thought of that before too. So like your round rating can go higher yeah. than that. So we can still see how it was for that round, but like your player rating caps out at a thousand. So here's what I was thinking, right? Which I like that idea. That was actually before when people would ask me, they're like, okay, so let's say ratings disappear. All right. Yeah. Mr. Smart guy, where do they disappear at? And I was always like, well, I don't know. Like that's why we're talking about it. Still be fair. A thousand's fair. Um, and I, I do like the idea of round ratings still showing. Yeah. Um, cause I, well, you can still tell like, Oh, he beat a quality. Yeah. Field, and a like plus, but a 1050 round can still influence like a 1050 round if you're below a thousand rated. So here's a separate question. Okay. Cause so let's just say ratings exist period. Paul's still 1060 rated the, you know, everyone's still their rating, yeah. right? There, there's no like a thousand plus next to his name. It's still four digits. Right. What if instead the, like pro tours, majors, we could even possibly say national tours, the top tours, ratings don't exist. Because I think where ratings lose their thing or lose their 
because this is this o- this only works in a scenario where there's tour cards or a qualification process. Right. Because if ratings lose their point to a certain degree, if the players who need to be there qualified to be there, so like the the top of the top's already there. So if you, if this player is finishing in tenth, that's a good performance. It doesn't yeah. matter what the num the numbers next to his name could say nine eighty. That doesn't matter because he just came in the top 10 of the top 100 players in the world. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if it was a 900 rated round, if somehow the ratings got that messed up. So I'm almost coming at it from that perspective now saying like, maybe it's not a professional blanket statement. Maybe it's not a pro because technically I'm a professional. I've accepted cash. Mm-hmm. So when I go to a C tier or a B tier, you know, there's no real point in getting rid of my rating because you know, a lot of people I play with are still AMs and stuff like that. Like there's no benefit or to getting rid of it or keeping it. There's yeah. no real benefit either way. But once you get to the top tour level, you know, if, if players are saying, if players don't want to have it, there's no real benefit to keep it. But to me, there's, as long as the media, and I think it comes down to the media, as long as the media and people talking about it aren't highly emphasizing ratings over everything else, I just don't like when Eagle wins or Ricky wins or whoever wins. And the first thing you hear is he won shooting a 1095 rated round. Right. You know, like if that's the immediate emphasis, I don't like that. Well, another interesting thought too, what you were saying about it, like not existing on like the pro tour, national tour, that kind of thing. Um, I think a useful thing with the rating system is when courses are played that we don't really know how they play. Mm -hmm. So, if a guy goes to USDGC and shoots 10 down, we know that's good score because we know how Winthrop Golds plays. Yeah. Okay. So we know 10 down is good. We don't need to see a rating to know, wow, 10 down was awesome. If a guy goes to a course we don't know anything about and shoots 10 down, our rating, the rating does help us assess, is that because the course is super easy or was that actually really good? Like 10 down, like I think it doesn't, it wouldn't need to exist on the pro tour because those courses hopefully become familiar with the audience to where they know if somebody shoots this score at a certain course, we know what that score means at that course. Yeah. That's true. I don't want to talk about ratings the rest of this podcast because <laughs> I feel like we have it's a rabbit trail. hammered this topic into the ground. But I will say one of the reasons I like there being like a rating cap, like a thousand rated, a thousand plus next to a player's name and you just see the round rating is because of rating inflation to the point it just that keeps going. no matter what, if players played the same, the way the algorithm and everything works. If players played the same and they didn't get better and the same players kept beating the field and all that, ratings would still rise. generally rise. Yeah. I don't know what the percentage is by year, but it's just the it's when you base it on a player's performance instead of how hard the course is, mm-hmm. then the rating's always going to go up. Yeah. So that's why I mean, Paul is getting better. The field is getting better, but you're going to see the average rating of a pro field continue to increase and increase and increase and increase to where... Three years from now, the highest rated pro is probably going to be in the mid 1070s or something like that. Not saying that player is not that good, but that's just going to keep going up because of the fact that ratings are going to keep... It's just rating inflation. That's a thing, and it's because it's based on the players and not the course. So, maybe Well, maybe one last thing. Maybe like another solution is just adjusting the scale on which ratings are... So, based on the course? Well, like we right now, we are the, the rating scale goes from like technically... I mean, really, it fluctuates from like 600 to 1,000. You know, what if it goes from zero to 100? You know, like what? I don't know if changing the scale would, would make things different, but. I just think no matter what the scale is, I think when it's based on the players and not the course, it's always going to be 
it's always going to be finicky and it's never going to be perfectly accurate yeah. which is, no systems can be perfectly accurate but um you know one other thing this will be the last thing because i, I want to get to the rest of this podcast <laughs> i don't want to be the podcast that talks about ratings week in and week out but one other thing is in golf there's obviously local pros mm -hmm. similar in disc golf so if i was a local pro quote unquote i only played like local tournaments for cash yeah do i know my handicap well the thing is the the term pro in um in ball golf is not used nearly as lightly so like if you are if you consider yourself a pro golfer whether that be a local pro um or a touring pro you're scratch or better well you're better than scratch probably and even if you know it you definitely aren't talking about it. So it sounds like in, in golf. And the thing is, like, in, in ball golf, you have to actively get a handicap. You have to play like five rounds, I think it is, at a course of your choice, get the scorecard signed. Like, you have to try to get a handicap. So, like, as a local pro, you have no reason to do that. So, like, because in, in disc golf, like, if you play a sanctioned event, you're going to get your rating regardless. Mm -hmm. In ball golf, you have to literally pay and, like, get yourself a handicap, and they expire after a certain amount of time. So, like, a local pro has no reason to do that whatsoever because local pros are usually teaching pros. So like, you know, they know their stuff. They don't need to have a handicap to like say, come le learn from me. This is my handicap. You know, they'll say, come learn from me. I'm certified in all these different technologies to mm. help you learn your swing and whatnot. But no, it's not. People don't even like, I mean, I've played, you know, I played high school level and I played like, handicaps don't really get thrown around except for like weekend things where people are trying to like decide how many strokes you get because it's a thing it's a matter of money you know yeah like how many strokes should we give you to make it fair that kind of thing handicap is not nearly looked at the same way and i just know that the whole idea for ratings came from the handicap system so i always was curious yeah. where well it's like a mixture of handicap and like the fact that ball golf courses um have like a slope rating and like a course rating so like disc golf doesn't have that so they almost had to combine like handicap and the slope slash course rating type thing into one to make it an abomination and <laughs> it's kind of what happened but it's definitely different yeah i just when i was looking at that week the tournament i started questioning everything i'd said and i was like <laughs> i need to bring this back up because mm -hmm. i don't know if i feel the same way anymore I don't know. There's still definitely things to talk about with that because I know Paul, the whole reason Paul brought it up is he was pushing for a true world ranking system instead right. of it being based on ratings, which I could definitely see the benefit in that. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff that comes with it that will help us look more professional as a sport and stuff like that. I get all of that, but I don't know if the answer is ratings going completely away. Was the whole reason I wanted to bring it up because I think there's there's some benefits to the rating system. Um, final topic on the, the Brody, Brody win. Uh what do you think this means heading into the rest of his year and like expectations for next year? Was it, was it like a, a one-off fluke or is this going to be something we see pretty consistent? I don't think it was a fluke. Um, he shot higher rated golf before, like he's played good golf. So like, I don't think it was a fluke. I will say it like seeing him play on the pro tour and struggling. I was thinking I wasn't really sure like where the ceiling was. I didn't think it was like super high after that, like being able to turn yourself around that quickly and win. I think it like takes me back to almost like when he first started playing professionally to where like, I have no idea where the ceiling is. You know, mm -hmm. he could very legitimately stay on this track, like stay very, cause like there's a lot of really good disc golfers now who do not practice, you know, they've gotten to where they are and they're pretty like set with that and they don't practice a lot. So like if he takes it seriously and like 
we've seen it like practices and plays all the time. Like he could, you know, be a top 30 player in the, on the pro tour in the next couple of years. Like next couple of years in the next, I think next year in, he's a top 30. I'm, I said the next couple of years, it could yeah, be next year or the year too. after. Cause here, here's my thing is one thing we have to remember with Brody is it's not like, yes, he started playing in January, yeah. but it's not like the guy's never thrown a Frisbee before. Well, right. Like he, he obviously has a lot of mechanics and stuff that he right. knows release points and it's not like it's unnatural. So exactly. it didn't really, it surprised me it was this quick, you yeah. know, cause I expected when he left the pro tour to come train back in Dallas and all of that and started his off season early. First off, I didn't expect him to play a tournament this soon. I expected him to take some more time, which there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. That's just what I was expecting. Um, but with him playing a tournament this soon, I just didn't expect it to be a win and not even, it was a, it was a good win. Like yeah, if, he, oh, yeah. if he played, if he averaged that kind of golf on the pro tour, you know, he was in the top 50 for sure. It was legit. Uh, like he, it was a good, it, it was two rounds, but it was a very solid two rounds and it was very surprising two rounds. Um, you know, and we'll, we'll see, he has several more tournaments played, uh, plays for the rest of the year. So we'll, we'll be able to kind of keep track of that as it moves forward. Um, but I do think one thing I really got from the interview that I think personally I got like for my game was his mindset into the B tier and how, and I purposely asked him it because I could tell the way he was talking about the tournament and his preparation for the tournament. He's taking it seriously. He didn't treat it anywhere like I treat a B tier. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's just me. Maybe, maybe you guys listening or you show up and play several practice rounds and have notes, detailed <laughs> notes for B tier. Maybe that's a fault of mine because I, if this was an A tier that I'm going to play whenever, I'm doing that. If it was a pro tour, I'm doing that. If it was Worlds, I'm doing that. But if it's a B tier or C tier, I ain't doing that. A yeah. C tier, I might not even play a practice round. I've played C tiers blind oh, multiple times. Yeah. You, you, you always it's not regret good. it. Yeah. But I've done it. So, you know, that's something that I took into account that, like, you know, that's an obvious thing that's going to make you play better immediately is just knowing the course, knowing where to mess up, knowing where not to mess up. And the, you know, I honestly don't know why I haven't done it up to this point. I mean, it takes effort. <laughs> it does. And so if you're, a, I mean, if you're a newer player listening or, you know, watching us, I think that's something that you can learn from Brody's journey is like he, he did it backwards. Mm-hmm. Sure. Don't, I wouldn't recommend starting on the pro tour. We've talked about that multiple times. He did it backwards, but doing it backwards, you know, the only way he knows how to prep for a tournament is to prep for a pro tour. Well, and he got himself out of there you know, at the right time, you know, he's, he noticed he was getting buried and discouraged and he said, well, let me get out of there. You know, not, yeah, there's no, if there's you stay no on the pro tour, it just is going to get worse. So mm-hmm. he got out of there to reset figures game out before yeah. trying it again. That's the key. Yeah. Uh, definitely the right decision and it's already starting to pay off. So exciting to see the rest of the season with him, something else that was exciting and hopefully we get to see the rest of the season. Actually, we definitely won't be able to see the rest of the season, but I don't know what I'm saying. The CBS broadcast was this past week. And our podcast aired technically after the second round was shown, but we hadn't watched it yet because we filmed it before the first round ever aired. So this is the first time talking about it after actually seeing the broadcast. So first off, give it a grade. A, B, C, D, or F. Pluses and minuses? Do I get those? Sure, give it a plus. Uh, Or a minus. Honestly, considering when you consider that they only had an hour time slot, I'm giving him an A minus, maybe an honestly an A. I give him an A. Interesting. So what's keeping you from giving that plus? 
I'm at an A as well, so don't think that you're like wrong. Yeah, but it's probably, and and it comes down to like the fact that there were time constraint, but like the way they jumped around sometimes, I didn't love it. There were a few things that were a bit off. I like it's so minute though that like I don't know. I don't like giving things perfect grades. Yeah, I think that's it. Uh, I was on an A for two reasons. One, and they're. They're both because of the time constraint. But the first one was the big German Nate Sexton commentary. They did an absolutely phenomenal job. Don't get me wrong. Right. But I think it's because of how rushed it had to be that yeah. they talked. Because, I mean, an hour coverage is realistically like, what, 40 minutes probably of actual disc golf? If that, yeah. Um, and so they they talked the whole time pretty much. Nonstop. To yeah. where there wasn't much downtime. And it, I, I never noticed it on YouTube watching Jomez. Part of the reason I think is because they have time. Mm-hmm. And the other part I think was the mindset of sitting down and turning on CBS sports. You, I don't know if this was the same for everyone else, but for me, my expectations of what I was going to see were higher, not than what I saw, but like higher than what I would see on YouTube. Right. I think right. that the production quality and everything met my expectations, Yeah. but I held it to a higher standard in my brain than what I'm watching on YouTube. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if it was that or if it was just that they were rushed, but I just was like in my head, I was almost in like a golf mindset to where I expected when a player's teeing off, you don't hear anything. Yeah. And you hear the swing of the club, the hit of the ball. It's or tough you when hear, there's no gallery too. So they didn't true. even have the option of filtering that in. That's true. Um, but I don't know that, like I said, that's the only reason I'm not giving it a plus is because of that and because they had to cut shots out to make it fit. Yeah. So you didn't actually get to see shot by shot coverage, which if it was the full... Like, let's say it was a full round and it was actually produced by CBS for CBS, not what we're used to. You wouldn't see shot by shot anyways. No. Because it well, would jump it depends from, on the player. If they're following, like, if you're following Tyre Woods, you're going to see every single shot. So, I guess Paul, Ricky, Eagle, whoever's hot that weekend. Yeah. And, and it's kind of like, like in ball golf, it's kind of like a feature card system where, like, they're going to follow a group, a featured group, and then they're going to jump around. Other I players. will say the one thing I really liked, and I vividly remember it round one. I'm, I'm sure they did it the other two rounds, but I just remember the first time it happened was they jumped back a hole to Emerson. Mm-hmm. And so we were on hole, I want to say, like, five or six. I don't know. And the lead card just finished it up. They, they threw their tee shots. Shot. Yeah. And then they're like, all right, now here's what happened moments ago with Emerson Keith. And it went back and just showed Emerson's three shots on a good, like a perfectly executed birdie. And they showed it kind of as like, this is another way to play the hole. Yeah. Uh, loved that. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the reason that they, we don't see that in normal disc golf coverage is because if you jump back a card, you're going into Central Coast round. Right. Or if you right. jump forward a card, you're into Jomez round. Or if Jomez jumps forward a card, they're into the disc golf network. So yeah. that's where our current structure kind of limits us Mm -hmm. is that the disc golf network, I think the disc golf network is the only one that can jump card to card because they're live and they own the rights. Everybody else would be stepping on toes. uh, Yeah, exactly. So everyone else like Jomez, a lot of this, not a lot of the stuff, but some of the stuff they did jumping around, they can't do day to day. Right. Uh, And then central coast obviously couldn't gatekeeper can't, um, GK Pro with the FPO coverage probably could because there's no one else covering FPO, but mm-hmm. that would require a larger team than they might have. Yeah. Um, but that is something interesting that got me thinking a little bit is like, that's something I would love to see is multiple cards covered. But until all the coverage is under one house, 
we can't see that. Yeah, it's true. So, you know, Brody was on Smashbox uh, after this win. Uh, when you're listening to this, it'll be like two nights ago. Mm-hmm. And that was one thing they were talking about was the pros and cons of moving to fully live in the future and if that'll ever actually happen. Mm-hmm. And I think what's tough about disc golf is I just like probably everyone listening and probably just like you, I'm a Jomez fanboy. Same, yeah. Love Jomez, love everything they've done, love everything they are doing. Mm-hmm. Their coverage is well above what we deserve. Right. I love Central Coast too. I love Gatekeeper. I love anyone that provides coverage. Yeah. But the issue is that as long as they exist, Central Coast exists, GK Pro, Gatekeeper, all these coverage ones exist, we'll never get the live coverage that everyone wants, if that makes sense. Well, I think I think the, and this is speculation a lot of it, but I think the reason that the Pro Tour is using multiple companies is because no one company has a big enough team to cover as many cards as they'd like. But if you paid, if you paid Jomez right. the so, amount to cover... Well, that's the, just the thing. If they, I think it's pretty much unanimous that amongst disc golf fans that Jomez is the top dog. Like yes. They do the best job. Probably um, even among disc golf coverage companies, it's unanimous. Right. So it's just going to come down to Pro Tour deciding, you know that they just want to contract Jomez, and so Jomez can afford to do have a big enough team to do all of it. I do think whether... And I don't I don't think that's very far in the future. Well, I do think whether we go post-production or we go all live, it needs to be all in on one or the other, and it needs to be all under one umbrella. Yeah. Because the reason behind that is, is we need all eyes on one thing. Yeah. One. And so not even like Jomez produces lead card, chase card whatever it needs to all be one production period because the whole reason i say that is how are we supposed to sell this to a sponsor if we're getting sixteen thousand, whatever it is concurrent live viewers this is all mpo numbers um live concurrent viewers with this stream we're getting fifty thousand per nine with the jomez coverage and we're getting thirty thousand, whatever yes there's a lot of overlapping but there's also some that's not overlapping yeah so let's say that we combine all of those, you know, we might be able to, if it's a post-produced one round on Jomez or if it's uh, fully live on Disc Golf Network, you know, I, I think lives are always going to get less than post-produced. But live, let's say, because post-produced, if I watch it and then I show you it and then I show my mom it, I just lose three views. Right. Live, that's, we're all one view. Right. But regardless, let's just say live, I think we could push like 20 plus thousand. If that was the only way you consume disc golf, disc golf coverage, it's going to be 20 plus thousand. If post-produced on Jomez and it's all chase lead third card, all one, one coverage, their views are going to go up. And then that makes it a lot more attractive to bigger money market marketers, whatever you want to call the people that are selling the Jomez production, the, the pro tour, whatever it is. Yeah. It's definitely a less confusing product to pitch um well like name another name a sport that you know and this is a good point that brody brought up it's smashbox and i actually really i never thought of it this way but name a sport where you can name the production company like not the not the not the network yeah not not the the network network. but the production company well i mean i i assume it's usually in-house but but you see what i'm saying I, i get what you mean yeah like the fact that we can like well, look it's, at it's Jomez, Central Coast, Gatekeeper. Like yeah. we have like all of these production companies. Of know, like the main televised sports, I think it's the only one of those you can say got its start 
by being post-produced. And I might be wrong on that, but like as far as like the big sports. So I wonder if, and I feel like Spin TV kind of tried this, Um, but I don't think the sport, I think a lot of stuff in disc golf that like has been tried, but it was tried too soon or it was tried with non good enough technology. But I wonder if the Pro Tour could still hire out the same crews, Jomez, Gatekeeper, whatever. But it's all in-house on the Disc Golf Pro Tours YouTube channel or something along those lines. I just think getting it all under one roof could be beneficial for things like the CBS broadcast. Because like the CBS broadcast, I guarantee you their live numbers, even just the amount of disc golfers watching, were higher than we're seeing anywhere else right now. The thing with that is it just becomes a turf war because those companies know that they can get more revenue if they have stuff under their own channels. They want that stuff on their own channels. So like they're going to be hesitant to all buy in, especially mm-hmm. when you're one of the not Joe Mez guys and you're buying in there with Joe Mez and you know, you're not even the best company in there. You're worried. You're probably worried about the pro tour controlling your revenue a bit more having power over you. It's, it's definitely, Man, it's tough. there's, yeah, it's a pretty big struggle. And I think, I just think it, it's a, it's a weird struggle disc golf's in, that we're going to have to get creative to get out of because, and the, the fact of the matter to me, at least looking at it is like, even if we're bringing in, we like Jomez brought in Arby's, right? Mm-hmm. Even if Jomez by themselves are able to bring in these massive sponsors yeah. to Jomez, right? That helps the sport. Yeah. But how much bigger of a sponsor could we get if, it was all combined. So even if we can, everyone's getting big sponsors, what could they get if they were all together? And it's a, it's a weird situation because I mean, if you just look at production companies in general, right, you don't know the production company unless you're the business looking for the production company. Yeah. So like if we had a commercial produced for us, you wouldn't know the production company that produced it for us. Yeah. It would be on Foundation Disc Golf's YouTube right, channel right. or whatever. You know, and that's what that's what I'm getting at, right? Is that these Jomez at its nature is a production company. Yeah. So those companies have to decide are they willing to be absorbed, you know? And be- because yeah. Jomez like already has a really good thing going for them with a their great channel. Thing and yeah, and they have this independence. So they have to say, you know, can we become even bigger? If we decide to just become part of the pro tour where we're not even, you know, Jomez might be mentioned kind of like it was with the CBS coverage. Like we saw their copyrights, but really it was the CBS coverage. Yeah. Uh, And like, it's also, it's tough to know like how much of like did, I don't even know how this worked. Did CBS just give Jomez all their graphics and the rights to use them and then just let them go with it? I don't know. Or did they, yeah. Or did they just use the footage from Jomez? Like, and then some of the stuff, like, I'm not sure what, that all like was, but like, let's say pro tour, uh, like Joe Mess says, we want to become part of the pro tour. We want you to be your exclusive, you know, guys in charge of doing all your production stuff. Um, and so we, instead of like, we'll use pro tour graphics, we use pro tour logos, you know, anything that we bring over from Joe Mess, will kind of add a pro tour twist to it. You know, does that help them in the long run? Or are they just like, well, let's ride out this post-produced hype train as long as we can while that's still the main way to consume disc golf uh, and we have our own thing and we have control over it. It's definitely like in the middle of a shift right now. Yeah. And I they're kind of caught in between. I have no idea how it's going to sort was, itself If out. I was Jomez, I don't know what I'd do. 
Because, because well, short term, one hundred percent stay as a separate entity. Right. Like no. No. Doubt. You have to think about the long term. And the potential long term, possibly stay as a separate entity will work. You know, yeah. like there's no way to know Until where it's going. The, the the big issue would be if somebody like the Pro Tour were to get bought out by a CBS, not bought out, but like picked up by a CBS Sports Network. And then CBS says, oh, sorry, we're bringing our guys along. Mm. And since you're not a part of the Pro Tour, you no longer have any rights to film any of this. That is true. I think that I can I can already see that happening and this golf community getting out. I was going to say, because that's I can see it happening. That would be an issue of. We're in the disc golf community as a collective. So like Jomez and Central Coast and all their existence makes sense to us because that's the only way we've consumed disc golf up to this point. Yeah. That always will make sense to us, yeah. you know, but if you come from an outside perspective, it probably doesn't make sense because like nobody else does it that way. Yeah. And that's the tough thing is there'll, there'll always be, um, well, what's the benefit? highlights post-produced. If I was the, if I was a pro tour, okay. And I'm looking at this thing. Really, the the issue to me is the not an issue. If I'm Jomez, the issue is that the Pro Tour holds all the cards. Yeah. Right. Because we all love Jomez. Right. There's no doubt about that. But at the end of the day, if Jomez is never filming a card that Paul's on, we're still gonna watch Jomez because of the quality and everything. But at the end of the day, like I'm gonna watch Paul's round. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. Prioritize that. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is where I think that. Disc Golf's tried this in the past and failed horribly with Steve Dodge. He did this when he was the and he was just a man kind of ahead of his time with, Where with he this held idea. All the rights. He held all the rights, brought all of it in house, used it was bad coverage. It was horrible. Yeah. But the idea in itself wasn't horrible. It was A thrown upon us to where you snapped your fingers one day and Jomez wasn't a part of the Pro Tour. Mm-hmm. It was just thrown upon us. It wasn't I'm sure he consulted with Jomez. But he didn't consult with the disc golf community. Yeah. It wasn't phased in. And they didn't test it. So their big like launch was the memorial. And the live awful. coverage sucked. It was so bad. Yeah. To where the the cameraman he brought in and never filmed disc golf, you know, the, the yeah. cell service. The idea is was was great. It's fine. Whatever. But I, I do think that that's an interesting thing. I don't even know how the heck we got here. But that's something that like I am sitting here and I can like I can see it going. I can see where it's kind of going. And I think you're right. It's going to be more along the lines of when a CBS sports or an ESPN two or a FS one or whatever. Yeah. Some sports network goes, comes to the pro tour and wants the broadcasting rights or the ESPN plus rights to their live. They're not going to, they're not going to, nobody else is going to be filming it. Yeah. Cause I'm saying they're not going to allow anyone to be pulling from them because they have to have those views for their commercials especially with espn plus you can go back and watch that stuff too it's not like oh it's only live with them no like that's going to be you're able to go back and watch that so yeah yeah, that that i can really it seems almost inevitable that if if you don't hop on board of right now the pro tour is the big dog and if you don't hop on board then they could get absorbed by somebody bigger and you could get left behind even if you do hop on board like even if joe miss sold out right and yeah. went pro tour and they're like we'll be your that won't that might not matter if cbs or espn comes well, in and says hey we're gonna bring our full golf crew you know and set up at this event yeah we're filming that's the well that's just the question is 
a company with big enough pockets is probably going to be smart enough to at least utilize somebody who's so no, familiar with filming disc golf yeah. and knows it. Now, because then my question is with when CBS Sports Network was thinking about this, did they hire on Jomez because for that reason, like they're the best, let's use them? Or was it, we don't really feel like dragging a production crew out. Their stuff looks good. We've seen it. So let's just throw our name on it and see what happens. It, it's a matter of which one was it. And we don't know. Yeah. Because well, I will say, I feel like, I feel like from what I've seen of golf and what I know of disc golf, it, disc golf's harder to film. Because of I mean, not necessarily like the tech, like following the ball, but as far as in the woods, knowing the flight of the disc. Because I mean, the, the if you don't know the sport, exactly, well, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Like bringing in like golf, I feel like they set up towers on a lot of holes, or like one tower can cover three or four holes. Yeah, you can't do that in disc golf. At least most courses, you might be able to at like the country club, Emporia Country Club, but like well, that goes back to our old. <laughs> Well, question of when, how long is wooded golf going to be around? Well, I think wooded golf is going to be around for the long haul, and I we'll think just have the, to figure out new ways to film it. I we'll guess. have to film out. They'll have to figure out not even new ways to film it because I think Jomez does a great job. It's more new ways to broadcast it because I don't. Yeah. I don't know if the signal, like, wh- where are we ever getting live TV from Deep Woods? Well, you got to bring it. You got to bring in a truck. You know, like it's got to be yeah. a full setup. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing too. Is Disc golf has to have the audience before any of this happens yeah. to warrant them sending out a full crew and truck. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't even know, again, I don't know how we got here because we. I just wanted thoughts on the broadcast. But it, it is a very interesting thing that, you know, I didn't really, I don't want to say I didn't think of, but I hadn't given much thought to until Brody and Smashbox were talking about it. Yeah. And they were bringing it up and they're talking about it. And I'm like, Oh, it's interesting. Yeah, you know, because we've talked about is post like post produced versus live, but we've, I've never really thought through like a. I've never thought through CBS Sports or someone coming in, but b. I've never thought through how crucial it is to have everything under one roof, even even if it is post produced. Mm-hmm. I think it is crucial that disc golf soon gets everything under one roof. Whatever that roof is, I don't know. Realistically. It would make the most sense to be like the Pro Tour does the Pro it's Tour lot, coverage. It's a lot clearer now than it was years ago. Yeah, but I mean, even it being if it if Jomez puts their foot down, which that's the thing is, does Jomez have in this situation? Does Jomez have the power to even put their foot down and say no? Because what what happens no to what if if the Pro Tour is like we're bringing everything in house? Yeah, does Jomez even hold the cards to say no? Because like, like they could immediately go, Jomez says no, they could immediately go, okay, Central Coast, are you willing? Right, you're saying if like if they want to bring Jomez under them or else they're not filming and yeah. Jomez just says no. That's a tough decision if I'm Jomez because you like call their bluff. <laughs> if I say no, I'm not doing that because me personally, like it from found like foundation, I right? Don't if if someone showed up and. It would have to be a big dog. Literally, it would probably have to be like Discraft. If Discraft was like, you have to sell as Discraft and your brand has to go away or else. Like every part of me says no. But if I'm in Jomez's shoes, if you say no, you're risking the thing you built your business on going away. Yeah, Yeah, if you can't film the Pro Tour, then you don't really have much. Yeah, I don't even know where this conversation's going, but a lot of it, I'm just like, 
live talking about it, figuring some stuff out that I'm like, we, we're going to face some interesting, interesting stuff yeah. in the next few years of coverage. And I, I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't know what to feel about what's going to happen. Yeah, I don't know. I just hope it works out. I mean, it'll work out. It's just how will it work out? Interesting. Interesting stuff for sure. So let's go back to the CBS sports coverage. Um, because I, I do want to highlight some stuff that Jomez brought to the table that we've never seen before, which is whole previews where the drone, they literally like highlighted the fairway. Yeah. They showed the landing zones really clearly, yeah. which was, which was really cool. So stuff like that, the, the, that thing, they had drone footage of throws From where overhead, they were yeah. yeah, way up above overhead. Um, stuff like that. Is that something you think we can expect like, let's just say GMC, because that's coming up this weekend. Are we seeing this at GMC? Mm, well, I don't know if the reason we saw it is because there was more equipment. I think that's why. Well, was it more equipment or more time? Because they did have a month. That's yeah, the thing I keep but like having to. a drone parked over top of a hole. Mm. Like yeah. like that, Like I think that comes to having a bigger crew and that's more That's true. More a bigger equipment. crew and more equipment. But what about the, like, I think, the hole preview thing where like that one time they literally flew through a follow flight? Yeah, that that's a good question. That that might be something that, like, is that because that they, they had a month? Well, that yeah, that may have just been like we have so much time to do these graphics because Jomez has a pretty fast turnaround time. Mm-hmm. Next day, every time. Yeah, so that that may have been the case, or maybe it was somebody came along from CBS and say, "Hey, this would be cool," and now Jomez is like, "Oh, that's something we haven't thought about before." So maybe Jomez got a bunch of ideas, and hope. I like to think it was follow flight Mike, just like. Like this was within him the whole time. And well, he was it, just hey, like, it might be the case. He was just like, look, guys, if I had three days, I can do this. And they're like, we got to get it out next day. Right. Which, I mean, he has time beforehand, so it's not three days. I've, I personally, I just think it would be too overwhelming to have to do it. Because realistically, a lot of times, Joe a schedule is they show up to the course. They have like four days before the event starts to yeah. film the flyovers and their like B-roll stuff and get all that set. And I feel like that is probably not enough time for follow flight Mike to sit down and do the drone sick thing. Whereas a month was enough. I guess we'll find out. We will find out. I hope I'm wrong because I really want to see it again. Yeah. It was sick. It was cool. Uh, So speaking of GMC, let's get into some predictions. This is going to be, I don't want to say a weird event, but it kind of feels like a weird event simply because of the quarantine process and everything the players had to go through to get here. Um, So they basically had two options or I guess technically three options. You could go home, Take a COVID test, and then after you took the test, quarantine for seven days. Yeah. Um, and then after that seven day quarantine was over, and you had a negative test result to show for show as well, you could go up to Vermont, or you could do a, the, pretty much the same thing in Vermont. So show up in Vermont, take the test, quarantine yourself until you got your test results back, and then if you showed the negative test, play. Or if you didn't want to take a COVID test, show up in Vermont and just quarantine yourself for fourteen days. Yeah. So from social media, I got the feeling that players were doing all three. Yeah. You know, it seemed like like a lot of players were doing a lot of different things. Yeah. I know Paul and Hannah came and Haley King were here, took the test and quarantined and waited till they got their all three negatives. And then they were overly cautious because they wanted to make sure they played by the book. So they waited the full week, even though they got their test on like day four, they waited the full week and then headed up to Vermont and drove straight through the night. Um, And then I saw, I think like ricky's already up there i couldn't i didn't from ricky's post i didn't know if he was doing the 14 day or the seven day not sure either way he was quarantining up there and then i think i'm trying to think who it was there was one player i saw on social media that was doing the 14 day yeah i don't know which one i would have picked i 
you know, it, it's doing that gets you into Green Mountain and Maple Hill. So I could see the benefit in doing it, but it's a lot of work to do it. Right. I mean, not really, but kind of. Yeah. And the fact that you got to either go park, re- no matter what, you got to go park somewhere for at least a week, possibly mm-hmm. two. But the players have done it. So now they're good for Green Mountain and for Maple Hill. I haven't heard of any positive COVID tests that this has brought forward. So I've not either. You know, I don't want to say it's surprising, but it's good. It's good. It's good yeah. news. Disc golf is still kicking strong with no positive COVID tests. So going into GMC this weekend, let's just get straight into the predictions. You know, we, we've seen these courses. I don't really, I haven't heard of any major changes to e- either course. Um, and I, this is always one of my favorite tournaments to watch. It's so it's cool scenic. course. I yeah. want to get there. Yeah. We got to find neat. a way. All right. Let's go do a face off. I'll, I'll follow you. <laughs> um, so I'm going to let you go first on the MPO side. Who you got? Who's your top three? Uh, we're going to have, I guess we'll start from third. We're going to go with my boy Nico. Okay. I'm not, This might be a completely incorrect statement, but I'm pretty sure he's had some success at this course. I know I've watched him on some coverage here before. I think 2018 Worlds, he was, he was definitely on lead card. Right. I think that's where it was. So I'm going to go with Nico. He's been around. He's been hanging around. I like I like Nico. So uh, second, I'm going to go with Ricky and then first, you know, probably pretty close by will be Paul. I'm going to give Paul this win. One pretty convincingly last year. He's due for a win this year. It'll probably end up be a battle. I think him and Ricky battling is going to be the pattern for the rest of the year. So should be close. But yeah. I'm thinking he gets back on the board this week. He's very much due for a win. Yeah, I'm agreeing with you on on that part. I think Paul takes this one down. He had a nine-stroke win last year. 2018 at Worlds, he came in second to Barsby. And then in 2017 was his only career DNF with, was it his ankle or his back? It was one back, of Back, I think. I don't know. Might have been his ankle. Has his ankle been hurting him for that long? No. I'm pretty sure it was a back thing. It was back. His ankle was USDGC. Yeah, so 2017 he DNF'd. But regardless, you know, a nine-stroke win last year is hard to pass up. Uh, it shows that he's comfortable with this course. But it also, like you'd said, uh, he's he's going to be a little fed up. Because yeah. he, he's coming off of, you know, I don't want to say not great performances because he's had a chance at winning Idlewild and then Ledgestone. Ricky just absolutely dominated. Um, but I, it, historically, I feel like Paul, if he loses a few in a row, he doesn't like to keep losing. So yeah, I, I think it's going to be tough for someone to beat Paul. But the one man that can is Ricky. Ricky's been on a little bit of a tear. Mm-hmm. Um you know, at Ledgestone, he just looked like the old Ricky. Yeah, he did. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of scary for the rest of the field because Paul has been playing good all year. You know, he's had up and downs, sure. Um, but to see Paul playing like Paul in general, you know, nothing crazy, but playing like a, a good, decent Paul. And then to see Ricky coming back to Ricky form. If I'm the rest of the field, I'm looking at it like, all right, are we stepping yeah. back into 2014 to 2016 or what's going on here? It's going to be hard to beat them. It's going to be hard um, to beat them. I do think that one player that could is Eagle, but he's not who I picked for third because I'm picking Chris Dickerson. He, a little bit of Woods? A little bit of Woods, yeah. sure. He just historically, he's played pretty good here. Nothing great, you know, but nothing bad either. He's just, he. these courses seem like from his past finishes to kind of play to his strengths and just from what I know. So I, I feel pretty confident with, with Chris sneaking up in there. Even if he's not third, he's going to be up there, I feel like. Um, yeah, that's good Eagle's pick. definitely another player to watch this weekend. 
you know, he took Ledgestone off, um, but he's been, he won back to back at D glow and then Idlewild. And, um, you know, he, he's going to be coming in hot and it, I, I feel like Kevin Jones is another one to keep an yeah. eye out for. Um, so, you know, Nico's a good pick that you had in there. You know, I didn't really think too, too much about him, but he definitely has played well here before. And I feel like we also, sometimes you see a player like a Steve Brinster or MJ. I don't even know if MJ's there this year. I didn't see. But these courses, you know, you'll, you'll sometimes see a player like that. One of the more, I want to say old school, but kind of old school name players that you, you haven't heard in a little bit. Mm-hmm. So they seem to sometimes show up at this tournament. Yeah. Um. So it wouldn't surprise me to see someone like that sneaking in as well. Uh, and I'll let you go ahead on the FPO picks as well. Who who you got taking this one down and then coming in second and third? Yeah, so FPO is going to be pretty similar to what I've been going with. I'm going to have I'm going to have Paige winning. You yeah. know, it's that's really hard to pick against her. Uh, I'm going to have Katrina in second, and I'm I'm going to go with the narrative that it's going to be close. I think it will be close. I don't know if we'll see Paige have a blowaway win the rest of the season. To be honest. I think everybody's starting to creep up on her a bit. And then I'm going to go with Haley King in third. Okay. I'm actually going against what I wrote down. Okay. So I wrote page winning, but I'm flipping the script. All right. Sarah Hokum takes this one down. She has always been in the running here. Um, and Paige, I don't know. To be honest with you, I just feel like Paige is the easy pick, so I don't want to pick her. But I do feel it does like feel like that. I do feel like when you get in the woods, it's not that Paige plays bad in the woods because she always plays good. I think it the, definitely evens field. The, yeah, the woods allows other players to shine. That's to true. where a player like Sarah Hokum, who has a consistent forehand, as right. long as her putting is there, she's going to put herself in a position. Um, so I have Sarah first, Paige second, and Cat third. Cat's been throwing the disc great, um, especially at Idlewild or Ledgestone, excuse me, last tournament two weeks ago whenever it was um and again i think her very similar to sarah hokum if she can get her putt together she's going to be in in contention yeah. but cat t- typically throws the disc well enough that she's in contention anyways so sure. as long as her and sarah hokum can have their putt together i feel like they've they've got a shot at this title um but i'm just excited to see this coverage uh, i love watching coverage here you know i it's only been a few weeks, but I feel like it's been a long time since we it had like disc golf like network, it. like live coverage. And obviously the CBS sports coverage filling that in definitely helped. But, um, so the final pick we got here is the dark horse pick. Right. So do you remember yours off the top of your head? I have it right here. Okay. Well, I'm gonna go ahead and talk about mine. I don't know a lot about this guy. I don't even know how to pronounce his name. Well, this, is, this is actually like the second or third dark horse pick. I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. Figure that out. Jamin. Hume. Sure. Um, so if you don't know about Dark Horse picks, basically the rating cap, which, yes, we use ratings for this, rating cap was 980. It's got to be someone below 980 rated, and we basically say that this could this is going to be someone who plays well above their rating, well above their expectations, try to highlight and create storylines amongst lower players. Um, and it's been pretty entertaining. You know, Ledgestone was a little underwhelming, our picks, but mine won. That was the first week that they weren't like surprisingly good performances. Um, I think. What is our record right now? I believe you're up two one. Two one. Yes, because you, you won the first week. Um, it was close, and I won pretty convincingly the second one, and I think you won this last one. Yeah, sure. I think that's right. So uh, now we're we're on to week four. Trevor could tie it up, but I'm going with Jamin Hume. He's he's had some decent finishes as of late, uh, and honestly, that was the only factor I looked at. 
Yeah, <laughs> I've got this guy uh, Keenan Johnson. I believe that's the pronunciation there. That's a pretty easy one to pronounce. Um, I mean, he's not like he you know, he's nine seventy eight rated. Like he's his ratings bumped recently. My biggest reason for picking him is he's played like every Pro Tour event this season, and he's playing all of them. It looks like so he's no stranger to the Pro Tour. He's not going to be frazzled. Yeah, we'll put it that way. And he's had some decent finishes. So, I mean, he, he just cashed at Ledgestone. I know everybody did, but, <laughs> you know, he was only a couple over par, which is pretty good. Like that is, 20, that is better, 20 better than what I picked, I'm pretty sure, for last time. So, yeah, that's that's my pick, Keenan Johnson. Nice. All right. Well, there we go. We, we've got our two Dark Horse picks locked in. And as always, like to wrap the show up with a little bit of foundation news. Um, we have some apparel that is still... In being inventoried, not sure the exact drop date for that, but be on the lookout for that. Um, we should have a Discraft restock in soonish. Soonish. Um, we don't have exact confirmation on what or when, but hopefully soon to both. Um, and the final thing is when you're listening to this podcast, tomorrow is the sticker drop. It's a big day. Uh, I'm gonna let you in, listeners, on a uh, not a Whoa. secret, but a little bit of a secret. Whoa. The holographic. Frosted Tip Paul is the rarest sticker. So if you happen to pull one, post that sucker on Instagram, tag us in it, let us know that you pulled one. If you're sitting there and you're like, are we kidding me? We're talking about stickers? Like, are we 12? Look. We get it. Well, they might not be for you, but they sure are for people like me because I'm, you know, when I'm making these, it's it's been pretty hard for me not to pull the rare ones for myself because I love collectible things. I love, like, collecting and trading like basketball cards and sports cards and heck even i got into a few different like card trading games that it wasn't like pokemon or anything like that but yeah. like games with a similar idea where it's like oh my word did i just get this card i love that and so the idea that or the thought that we might be able to provide people with that same type of excitement even if it is stickers and i think they're practical that's why i like it it's like a sticker you can put on a you can put on your water bottle, you can put on your laptop, you can put on your car, you know, like if you want to just get them to have stickers, you can get them to have stickers if you don't care right. about collecting them. Right. Uh, like at the end of the day, there are stickers, but True. the collecting thing, I'm pretty excited. It seems like everyone on discord and those places um, are excited as well. Seems like it. So definitely a lot of people out there excited. Um, I'm going to be in that sticker trading channel, probably throwing oh, up a few, sure. few, I, I have two packs. I've already <laughs> opened them. I didn't get a holographic frosted tip, Paul. I want one. Name your price. I probably won't pay it. But <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're interested in like the sticker trading and stuff like that, if you're a person like me who's definitely going to get in on that, make sure you check the link in the description below to our Discord and join there. There's a sticker trading channel um, where people can post like what they've been getting and trade them. I think it's pretty straightforward. So definitely an exciting Exciting drop, something new, something we haven't really tried and I haven't really seen tried in the disc golf world. So we'll we'll see how it goes. We're feeling it out. And if it goes well, there could be more in the future. Yeah. All right. So that's going to be it for this week. Hopefully you've enjoyed the podcast. Let us know in the comments down below what you thought about all the topics we're talking about. And we always appreciate constructive criticism. If you have any, throw it down there. We do read it. Um, even when it hurts our feelings, we read it. So uh, other than that, guys, we will be talking to you next week.